This is Life of an Architect, a podcast dedicated to all things architecture, with a little bit of life thrown in for balance. Join us today as we talk about architects as chefs. This is the Life of an Architect podcast. I'm Bob Borson. And I'm Landon Williams. And together, we're going to be talking about architects and cooking and how those two things come together in a way that could be unique. I wanted to make this a topic for a podcast. Um, I can't tell you how many times I have heard over the years that architects want to be chefs. So let's get this out on the table and discuss our own culinary skills. So Mm. do you cook? Yes. Um, If we had to find a range between burning water and you can't master burn. chef exactly can you burn water master chef of a five-star michelin restaurant i'd put myself you know okay smack in the middle of that okay first off there's only three michelin stars uh, Michel- that- michelin yeah there's not five eating flan so i'm starting to think maybe you know how to cook but you I don't, don't know what a five star. You don't know Michelin what the rest of the star is. <laughs> yeah, there's only it only goes to three. Oh, so, well. but you cook. I know you cook. Yeah. So I I put myself in the range where you know I have probably five or six things that people know that I'm I cook well. So they kind of like those are things like, hey, why don't you make your jambalaya? You know your your gumbo or things like that. And if someone were to give me a recipe, I would say I nine times out of ten I probably could do that. I have enough experience in various little levels of interesting you know, making things. Or I can, you know, I've gotten to the point now where I've cooked enough I can sort of make my own, not menu, but I'm like, oh, I'm, I feel like I want chicken and I'm thinking, you know, what seasoning, kind of how do I want to change that a little bit if I'm grilling it, you know, what seasoning am I putting on and, you know, what's the side with that? You know, are you already thinking about the little things like that? And so you can create your own kind of menu you're at making a meal as opposed to i've got enough i've cooked enough like things where i can like build your own meal essentially but do you cook to eat or do you cook as an extension of who you like let me back up i think my skill level as a chef in quotes is a bit higher than yours yeah so i've i've gotten to the point to where i understand the science behind cooking so without following a recipe i know if i need to add a base or an acid or if something needs a particular type of ingredient to offset the other components. I know how to make sauces that don't break without following a recipe. Mm-hmm. I'm at that level. Yeah. Mine was more evolving from my college experience of cooking a bunch of stuff on Sundays. On, on hot plates. On yeah, hot- on hot plates. <laughs> warming up a can of beans. Toaster strudels don't count. Yeah. But I, I made things that uh, Bob likes to call, quote unquote, one pot slop is his, uh, <laughs> you know, his grateful term for it i should well to clarify that so landon probably more than the other 10 people in our office Mm. you bring your lunch to work with some regularity yeah and it's i'm telling you folks it's one pot slop (laughs) and that's not an indication that it's junk it is like it comes in yeah it's all you mix it all together the big thing i would make in college was this uh was a ground turkey sriracha uh and quinoa rice mix which i'd put like you know obviously onion bell peppers just throw in whatever vegetables you want and throw a bunch of spinach the, trini- thing, the trinity trinity the tr- yeah the whole <laughs> the holy land and trinity of just <laughs> it's throwing the land together. and trinity now yeah oh yeah 
Well, the Cajun Trinity is, you know, the onions, bell peppers, uh, celery. But that's, that's right. A, that's a different... Uh, Do you know the French trini- Trinity? Uh, I think they have carrots. Is changed out for uh, some bell peppers, probably. <laughs> <laughs> the okay, so yeah. So that's the point of this. Is Let yeah. me ask you just one more question before oh, we move on. Testing my skill. Who's a better chef? You or your mom? Oh, that's uh, hands down my mom. She, are, you, are you saying that because she's going to listen to this? <laughs> no, I'm not just saying that because she'll listen to this. Yeah, she thwarts any of my attempts to try to be a good chef. She's, she's like, she she's thwarts like, it? Not thwarts us. <laughs> that's the <laughs> wrong word. She, there's, there's no getting to her skill level unless I was just like, you know. Well, when you she said. She has a natural ability to. Well, she's been doing it longer. And that's true. Yeah, yeah. That's also true. When you said thwarts, I thought. Like she had this vision of her be sneaking into your kitchen and putting chili powder in your cinnamon. <laughs> <laughs> and you're like, this so is terrible. These I cookies are terrible. Everyone's just like, Landon, just stop trying to cook. These cookies are horrible. Yeah. So that was, I mean, those are the things I would make as college students. So yeah, they were just kind of mixtures. Well, I, I'm not sure that any college students, at least, I mean, maybe things are different now, but I didn't mm-hmm. really cook when I was in college. Yeah. Um, But I will say this. So my, I'm a much... My mom was a good cook when she was in her wheelhouse of the things that she grew up cooking. Mm-hmm. I think it's probably about, I don't know, maybe I was 10. Just like one day she said, I'm done with all this. <laughs> right? Because she was from Abilene, small Texas. Well, actually, she was from Putnam, and Abilene was the big town. Yeah. Right? But nobody knows about Putnam. Her family, they were they were ranchers, and, and they would cook. Her mom would get up with the chickens, crack a dawn, mm-hmm. and she would start cooking, cooking these huge... Kind of what people think of as Southern food, fried chicken, pork chops, eggs, potatoes. I mean, heavy gravy, oh, yeah. white gravy. And people would come into the kitchen, not just regular people, people that were working on the, on the, on the ranch. Mm-hmm. And they'd eat these huge, heavy meals because they're not eating lunch and they don't eat dinner till like, well, when the cows come home, I yeah. mean, at the end of the day. And so she was really good at cooking cast iron skillet, cornbread and, she would cook things like fried chicken and red steak and chicken steak fingers, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And it's it's pretty labor-intensive kind of food. It takes a long time to oh, make yeah. it. Yeah. It's an all-day affair. Yeah. And when she decided – and she worked. And so she would come home and she would start cooking. And an hour and a half later, there would be food. Mm-hmm. And she just said, I'm done with this. And when she wasn't cooking that food, she had no idea how to cook anything. And it was terrible. I kind of started to learn. And the funny thing is we would spend Sunday afternoons watching cooking shows together. Mm-hmm. And somehow it no, none of it really stuck. <laughs> <laughs> Just there on the screen. Yeah. And so I don't want to make my mom feel bad. But so I, I started to have develop an interest in cooking when I was about 10 or 11 years old. Okay. Maybe out of self-preservation. I don't know. <laughs> Got to keep myself some sustenance. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, for a while, I you know, I wanted to be a chef. So I bought with my allowance, I bought cookbooks, mm-hmm. you know, and um, I really took it seriously and I really liked it. And I think now, now that I'm 50 years old, the idea of cooking from a recipe that's easy. Yeah. You give me a recipe, I'll nail it. Yeah, it's done. I don't have any problems with that. But I also have this rule. So my wife and I, we, we both share a cooking responsibilities. Mm-hmm. If it's like a fancy meal, I'll cook it. If it's a, I hope my wife didn't get mad at me. <laughs> if it's just, hey, we need some food to eat, you know, and she cooks something. Yeah. It'll taste really good. But she doesn't follow recipes. She is a, she wings it on the highest order, mm-hmm. which is both good and bad. It kind of shows this creative side of her that, you know, in her day-to-day job, maybe she doesn't get to express. 
problem is if she really nails something, she can't ever recreate it because she can. <laughs> she's, she's the only one that can recreate it. Yeah, well, no, she it's can't. She doesn't know how she made it. Yeah, she because she's like, I'll add some of this and I'll throw some of that. She's got a camera this. in the kitchen, you know. I know that's what we need to do. It looks about like a teaspoon and a half. Well, I think the reason I ended up not becoming a chef is because I hate cleaning, and I'm, and I'm <laughs> yeah. pretty sure the process of working yeah. your way Entry up entry level is just yeah. cleaner. Yeah, your day one job is go scrub pots and pans for yeah. a year. You got to scrub the deck before you become the captain of the ship. Yeah. It's a good analogy. You're scrubbing stuff. Mm, and, yeah. I, and I don't like doing that. Okay. I don't want to do that. Yeah. So do you think, um, well, I believe this, but do you think architects and chefs, proper chefs, share certain characteristics? And I'll tell mm-hmm. you this, you know, I was doing some research for the episode and I found in uh, in 1815, a French chef, Marie Antoine Careme wrote, and I'm, not, I'm sure I'm not saying this right, La Patissière Royale which was a treatise that codified how architectural principles like drawing and planning could be applied to making pastries. Interesting. So clearly there's a connection between the two industries that, I mean, that's 200 years ago. Yeah, this isn't a new idea, I guess. This is not a new yeah. idea. Yeah. So do you think that, I mean, it's not just that we have similar interests, but do you think that there's certain characteristics as human beings, as individuals, we might share architects and chefs? Oh, yeah, definitely. There's, well, I mean, what do you think? It's, it's a universal thing. You know, cooking, you grow up with it. There's all these, you know, there's a historical precedence you sort of adopt from your uh, your childhood experiences, you know. Well, that's people's first experience, right? Yeah. Is the food that's made in their own house. Mm-hmm. And I wonder, unlike my story, if chefs come out of the fact that, like, the food is bad in their house, so they become chefs. <laughs> or upon, yeah. the food is really great and... It's a part of the culture of their family that they have these meals and they sit down or they prepare the prepare the food mm-hmm. and that helps plant the seed of interest. Yeah, it's something you you may have really appreciated as a child, so you continue that on in your Yeah, it's a natural life. extension of kind of how you define yourself or how you spend your your spare time. Yeah. I also think that like architecture you you learn regionally, meaning you know like the food that mm-hmm. you eat is the food that your parents cook. Yeah. And it's influenced by the materials, like both like brick or other yeah. things or fish, yeah. right? What's locally available? Yeah. Like I was saying earlier, my five to six recipes that people go to me happen to be Cajun dishes. So, growing up in Baton Rouge, when I went to school at Virginia Tech, everyone, no one really had a gumbo, like a legitimate gumbo or jambalaya. So, I'd make that and people would just go crazy. Like they Did you put okra in it? Uh, I didn't when I went to Virginia. My mom never made it with okra. I don't know if it's just because she doesn't like okra, but so I just, I've never made it with okra except for once. Yeah. Um, but I thought it was really good with okra. So that's something I'm going to, I'll add to her past recipes that she's given me. Yeah. So it's kind of a way to. I don't like it. okra. Yeah. It's slimy. It's, I mean, that's the thing. It, it thickens it up. So that's yeah. inherently why it makes it a little bit better, but. Some people just see it. And you wash a lot of that slime out yeah. sometimes. Yeah. If people don't yeah. eat okra, I don't know if this is – so one of the steps that I'm lacking as a non-chef chef, mm-hmm. right, is like I don't know if other people in other parts of the country do or don't eat okra. To yeah. me, it's kind of a southern thing. Oh, yeah. And the people who I know that really like okra, and I count my mom as one of them, world champion okra eater. O- <laughs> okra eater? <laughs> okra eater. <laughs> okra eater. And she would cut it up. And she would batter it in cornmeal and fry it. Everyone I know, everyone I know who eats okra, it's fried. It's battered and fried. Mm -hmm. It's not unbattered and unfried. Stew. (laughs) So I I like gumbo and I like jambalaya. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, but I don't like okra. So I like yeah. getting the ones that don't have okra in it. But yeah, so that's that. That's just a regional kind of idea with, I mean, architecture, there's a regionality to it, you know, cooking the same way. You may grow up, like you were saying, like you li- live near the coast, you probably hopefully love seafood because you, <laughs> I mean, that's the sort of over overarching kind of food culture there near the coast. It's yeah. seafood. Yeah. Well, I told you that story since we just got back from that trip to Maine mm-hmm. that I really started to do a lot of research on lobster. Lobster. You know, I wanted to see how it fit in the culture and how it's shaped because to a certain extent, everybody up there is, I mean, you, you buy something from yeah. Maine, it has a lobster on it. Do they have lobster gods up there? Are there like altars to the lobster <laughs> god? You know, I don't know. I, I'm going to say no. No, okay. <laughs> I don't know. I'm, uh, I'm feeling pretty good about my answer. But it's probably how like people in San Antonio feel. Like everything's Alamo this and Alamo that. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But if you go to San Antonio, you're like, remember the Alamo. But up in Maine, you buy a clock, it's going to have a lobster on it. Mm. You know, you're going to go to the store and buy some pot holders. They're going to have lobsters on them. That's what it is. So I was really trying to find out so the role that lobsters played in their in their society. And I found out that in the olden days the mm-hmm. olden days. In the olden days. You know, this is like eighteen late eighteen hundreds. People would come mm-hmm. there and they would they would fish for lobsters. And part of how they were compensated was room and board and, you know, this kind of stuff. And their part of their food, they were given lobsters to eat. Mm-hmm. And they actually wrote it in they started writing in the contracts that we only have to eat lobster three times a day or three times a week. <laughs> right? They're like, we don't yeah. want to eat this much lobster. Oh, yeah. Right. So I imagine you can have too much of a thing. Yeah. Even, that's definitely true. Even regionally. Yeah. Right. Except for pizza. I don't know where pizza is a region. Pizza is just universal. It's, it's universally loved. It is universally agreed loved. upon. Well, we talked about that unknowingly acknowledged historical precedent. Yeah. So there's some history just as an architecture. It's sort of absorbed in your childhood, sort of like nature versus nurture kind of thing you sort of grow up with this thing that's culturally you know around you and you just you don't know where it really came from well you kind of know, you know where it came well, from. well it shapes but, your palate right yeah it shapes your palate you know your experience of those things that impressed upon you in your youth like you like spicy food yeah i love spicy food. right and i think that's kind of indicative to the culture and the food that you yeah, ate growing up certainly my mom was allergic to garlic and mm-hmm. so I never, yeah. ha- we didn't, we never went out to eat because garlic's like in everything. Yeah. She didn't cook it with it, didn't cook with many spices at the house, which is okay when it's like the Southern food that she was making before. Cause that's pretty much seasoned with things like salt and pepper and mm-hmm. paprika, things like that. Yeah. It wasn't until I got older that and I started to do a little more traveling. I started, my palate kind of starting to open up, but I can't really eat super hot foods. Mm-hmm. You know, we had a lot of Tex-Mex down here. So oh, yeah. I can eat the jalapeno without too much issue. But if I eat like a Big Jim pepper from New Mexico, like a, a blanket on the word. You know, Ablano the big- or the hatch pepper or hatch chili? Yeah, the, the hatch green chilies. Oh, yeah. Okay. Right. So yeah, yeah. my wife really likes hatch green chilies. And she oh, yeah. she lived in New Mexico for a while. Yeah. And while on the Scoville index, when that's the index that rates like how hot foods are, mm-hmm. the difference between a jalapeno and a hatch- you know, hatch is a place, but the green chili. Yeah, yeah. It's not huge. And somehow I can eat jalapenos without it dying. Yeah. But those hatch green chilies, those green chilies, <laughs> man, you. they're I go, it's too hot for me. Yeah. That makes sense. So why do you think architects like to cook? Do you think it's an extension of their creativity? I mean, clearly yeah. there's a combination of technical skill and knowledge along with the balance of creativity, mm-hmm. but Certainly, there's some personality triggers. There's some characteristics that I think both groups share. 
Yeah, there's a huge, just like a Venn diagram. There's a huge overlap between the two, I think, because you're sort of operating as an individual, you know, you're trying to increase your skill at this thing, you know, and there's also that idea about some emotional reward, possibly, you know, you cook for your family. And they, you know, enjoy it. There's always, you know, smi- hopefully smiles on their faces. Yeah. Well, and, we, we, well, we had talked about that earlier before we started yeah. uh, recording was the idea that as a chef and like an architect, but this, the time scale is different. So as a chef, uh, you're creating something specifically for someone else's enjoyment or benefit. Mm-hmm. In a lot of ways, that's what architects do. We design buildings for other people to use and other people to, it, you know, hopefully it enriches their lives and how yeah. they go about it. Yep. And- and I used to make the comment that the thing that makes me a pro as an architect is I can design buildings that are not for me. Like mm-hmm. I don't have to, not everything has to be the way I want it for it to, for me to be able to do it. Yep. And I would think chefs share a similar kind of characteristic in that a chef doesn't have to eat part of every pie they make in order to be good at making pie. Mm-hmm. They yeah. don't have to, they can say, I know how to do this. This is going to be good. I don't have to taste and sample it. It's, I, they're good at cooking food they don't want to eat. Could you imagine the chef eating that many pies? Oh, my God. <laughs> I can, actually. Oh, I've tried. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Okay, so there was this article. Mm-hmm. I get a bunch of magazines on food. You know, I like reading about food. And this is something we haven't talked about, but maybe we'll circle back around to it. It's the yeah. idea of the foodie, foodie. And, and how food television. Like the Yelp reviewer? No, not that. Those people are crazy. Yeah. That's and what I and mean. <laughs> so d- mean. not that. The number of people that watch food TV mm-hmm. and they watch other people cooking food and, and there's this yeah. culture and people taking pictures on, of their food and posting them to social networks about this yeah. is what I ate, mm-hmm. even though they may not have know how to cook, you know, they don't know how to prepare anything, but they can go, this tasted really good and it's pretty. And they take a picture of it and they share it with other people. Oh, yeah. yeah. Right. Architects don't really get that. I don't know how many people say this is a beautiful building and they took a picture of it. <laughs> if they do, they normally put like a person in front of it. Yeah. Right. That's, look at me with this building. Yeah. Look at me in front of this cool building. Mm-hmm. But I read about food a lot. I don't consider myself a foodie because I don't think I have enough knowledge to really be a foodie. Yeah. And, and I don't spend the like I don't go out to the latest restaurant to eat. Okay. I see. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I'm not that person. Yeah. I mean, I like to make it more than I like to eat it. Mm-hmm. But I don't like paying for someone else to make it. If you think you can do the process just as good, it's almost like, I can do this. Let me do it at home, and then I can make it all the time. I don't have to pay, you know, 40 bucks for it. It makes us sound cheap. Uh, you know, that's <laughs> a DIY. I think it's a DIY culture almost. Like, Well, there is a part to that, right? And that yeah. kind of circles back to the architects who like to cook and you yeah. know, why do they like to cook and is it an extension of who they are already. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but I was going to say, I read an article in the New York Times. It yeah. came out, I think, in January of this year. Uh, and it was specifically about architects becoming pastry chefs. Pastry chefs. Pastry okay. chefs. And, you know, because I think in terms of like all the food arts or sciences, however you want to phrase it, mm-hmm. that baking requires a certain level of rigor that other yeah. types of food preparation do not require. Yeah. Not a lot of like, oh, I'm just add a little more salt here. Yeah. I mean, you got to be pretty good to just like be yeah. eyeballing stuff. But most oh, yeah. most of the chefs, like when I read it or watch it, they're like, I they sift have, it and I weigh it. Yeah, like grams. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like the part of them get beyond the even like, oh, it's one cup of flour. They'll go, it's 400, you know, grams of, of number two flour and That's they crazy. and they weigh it. What's right? the humidity level? So in this, in this article, there was uh, a, a pastry chef. Her name was Jennifer Yee. Who actually was an architect? Okay, in her first career, okay. and yeah, and if I remember correctly, 
her parents wanted her to be an architect instead of a chef because architecture was like a real job. <laughs> and she yeah. went and she, you know, I can't say if she was good or not, but I think she was unfulfilled. Mm-hmm. And so she went back to school and she became a pastry chef. And apparently she's pretty good about it or good at it because people are talking about it. Yeah. But she had a quote uh, and it had to do with, you know, people saying when you left, you know, left your architecture career to become a pastry chef, like what were some of the considerations? And she said that she found that her architectural training applied uh, in a pastry kitchen because being an architect is not all about the structure, she said. It's about, it's the intent. How will this improve someone's life? Desserts are also about thoughtfulness. And what are the ways I can manipulate this apple? What will highlight what's grown here? It's hmm. about looking at your environment and seeing what will be functional and beautiful in that space. Yeah, there's a similar thought process there. I mean, she's talking about food, mm-hmm. but you, she's also talking about architecture. Yeah, you can think about, you know, how, do, how I use masonry siding in this particular condition. There, She's talking about apples, you know, how yeah. can I manipulate the apple to ex- not only express, you know, some regionality maybe or that's right do my own thing with it it's the yeah, same, same thing and she's bringing something to the mix yeah. the way that she's interpreting this product this material that she has mm-hmm. and how can she treat it in certain ways and manipulate it for someone else's benefit yeah right yeah and i i, I just love that quote because it clearly articulates at the very heart of it why an architect might like being a chef so as an architect you and me who practice residential architecture, mm-hmm. do you think your interest in cooking is beneficial to your process when designing a kitchen? Oh, yeah. How could it not be? I mean, it's it's sort of part of the whole thing about putting yourself in someone else's shoes in terms of thinking about the process of cooking. I mean, you almost – you have to have cooked to design a kitchen. It helps, right? Right. Well, you know, there's – um. So every now and then I'll talk with people who are in allied creative industries mm-hmm. and I'll say one of the challenges of designing homes for people is the idea that all my clients, for the most part, have grown up living in a home mm-hmm. and they go, <laughs> I, under, I understand what goes in a house, right? There's a, yeah. there's a kitchen, there's this kind of bathroom, there's a master bedroom, there's other bedrooms, there's an office. I mean, they, they understand what all the boxes are, mm-hmm. right? So there's a certain amount of knowledge they're bringing to the, to the table, as it were about how things work. But you know, having sat next to me for two years, that I like to use first-person narratives as part of my design process. Yeah. And 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 having an understanding of how food is prepared is incredibly important to that creative process. You know, there's a workflow involved and being aware of how food is prepared mm-hmm. is clearly going to improve that, that end product. Oh, yeah, certainly. Right? And if you know about getting more from the client or – you know, are they cooking together? Is it two people operating at the same time in this kitchen? Or is it just sort of, is there one person who really loves doing all the cooking? And so there's one person moving around, um, just like space planning, if anything. As a residential architect, it almost, at least how I think about it, the kitchen is sort of the hearth of the home. If you want to go back to sort of like the elements of architecture, it is the central defining piece or hopefully, you know, right. where people are congregating. It's the most social, civic portion of a home so it's well it's the most used home or most used room in the house house. yeah it's the one room that everybody who lives in the house Mm -hmm. uses exactly and they use it multiple times a day Mm -hmm. and depending on the culture of your family lots of things can happen in that kitchen that Mm -hmm. not only include the preparation of food and the consuming of food 
but the social aspects of cooking that food. Yeah. You know, yeah. I was just um I was just up in New Jersey. Mm-hmm. I was asked to be uh, a design juror on a national design competition specific to kitchens and baths. Okay. Three days. Ooh, like it was intense. It was barely there was one window in the room at the far end, but it was kind of <laughs> like being in a windowless room for three days in a row looking at kitchens. That was my job. And and it was incredibly rigorous, the process that we went through. Mm-hmm. And the way they had us do it was, and this should be a different kind of podcast all in and of itself, you know, the idea of competitions and what level do you start evaluating since I've been a juror on so many of these sorts of things. Yeah. There is, there's like round one and it's kind of the- Ding, 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 ding. That's right. Just look at it really quick. Yeah. And go, it's the, yeah, that's no good. That's no good. This one's really good. The tag, the ones that are worth having additional conversation about which ones okay. are. Yeah. Filter them down. Yeah. Yeah. And they're not really looking for the judges. There were three of us that did the kitchens. Mm-hmm. They're not really looking for us to talk to one another at this point. We write down, I write down my 10 favorite. They write down their 10 favorite. And then they combine all our favorites. And then we take those into round two, which is since there were three of us, in theory, there could have been 30 kitchens for us to review. Yeah. You know, if my yeah, 10 yeah. were unique from their 10, which mm-hmm. were unique from the other person's. Yeah. But I think we ended up with around maybe 16. Oh, well, okay. Yeah. So there was yeah. quite a bit so of So it's a pretty clear indication of which ones are. That's right. You feel like you didn't miss the mark too much. Yeah. Yeah. Well, then round two, there were about 10 criteria that we went through and had to do with, like, we looked at drawings. We looked at the, you know, the layout. We looked at mm-hmm. dimension control because the group that I was reviewing it for, they're, they kind of have standards in place. This is a, yeah. a national organization. Um, I'm not sure if I'm supposed to talk about it or not, but um, they did have me sign some non-disclosures as oh, judge. Well, They're probably saying, don't tell that guy he won. <laughs> that's uh, probably, yeah, that's yeah. probably what they're talking He's about. signed him away. That's right. But we looked at like, what drop-off zones? Like next to the refrigerator, there should be this much space. Next to the oven, there should be this much space. Mm-hmm. If you're passing in between the island and you have this appliance behind it, how wide does that gap need to be? Okay. You know, like we really looked at the dimension control of this. Yeah. Um, and then we looked at like nine or ten of those different kind of criteria that are above and beyond dimension control. Mm-hmm. You know, like there's visual aspects, functionality, you know, creativity, materials. We looked at all this stuff. And then when you got to round three is when we really, then we had our, our conversations. You know, there might be five at that point that all three of us sit down and go pick one, two, and three, mm-hmm. you know, I was kind of surprised that when we got to that level, there wasn't a lot of conversation. Nobody went, I like this one. And someone goes, no, you're crazy. It's this one. You know, I mean, we're, it didn't take us too long to go. Yeah. There's always, always like a clear winner. Interesting. And so I spent a lot of time talking about kitchens and mm-hmm. I've been highly involved in the design process of them. And I'll tell you the, the narrative as a design tool, like how do you use the kitchen Yeah, as, as uh like trying to find out from the homeowner, how do they use the kitchen? Like, is your child, are you going to be making dinner while your child's doing homework? Yeah. Is it a homework station slash kitchen? That's right. Yeah. And there were certain trends that we saw, which were really interesting. Like mm-hmm. every single of the ones that made it to round two had an island. Mm-hmm. Not even okay. a peninsula, like an island. Yeah. And this, and we had small kitchen categories. Even in small kitchens, they tried to work mm-hmm. an island into it for the most part. Interesting. Yeah. And there was also kind of this kitchen stadium effect. I think that's part of what islands do is it helps buffer the chef from the spectator, mm-hmm. right? On one level, it's a big worktop surface area. That's great. But another one, it kind of says, 
you on that side, me on this side. Yeah. Right. It keeps people out of your traffic area. Mm-hmm. But you're still able to interact with those people. That's yeah. right. And, and they can watch. Back is in turn. Yeah. That's right. And it also helps uh, one person chef have the sous chef kind of as it were. Here, you chop oh, yeah. this up okay. while I'm doing this. Yeah. Even like that. Yeah. So there's, there's lots of these kind of narratives. How does the kitchen get used? How does it interact with the different members of the family? Does everybody mm-hmm. cook? Does one person cook? Do yeah. they do they eat at a table versus do they eat at an island? Yeah, is it like a, it does the kitchen exist in an isolated room or is it actually you know connected with where the eating happens or yeah it's other all, things going on in the even house? Even in the small kitchens, they were they were open. Yeah, you know the the whole like that's kind of a 1950s concept. Yeah, the idea of a removed kitchen is yeah. I think, it, gone. I think that it's very dated. It's the idea oh, that yeah. in those days. Mom goes to the back of the house and then magically food appears on the dining room table mm-hmm. and you don't see it and you don't know anything about it. And kitchens were very small. Yeah. Um, but to that end, I mean, you and I have worked on a couple of projects mm-hmm. and and one of them had to do with the culture of how the kitchen fit and the related, like there's outdoor cooking areas. There was a residential project we were doing, I think a year ago. And we had basically done, you know, laid out everything. We had, we were partially through almost construction documents and the client came back and we were going through, you know, or we're still kind of laying things out. And we had this grill area that was just off the back deck. You kind of, the backyard kind of dropped down to a pool area. So it was a stair and you got down a little grill area next to the pool. And um, we were having conversations with the client and he put it as a priority that, you know, he wanted to be able to go like right outside grill something, come right back in, you know, get back to the kitchen close to his family. Pretty reasonable request, yeah. right? And so we essentially, we designed in an alcove right off the den area, which was, you know, visually connected, you know, spatially with the kitchen, the main kitchen. So that, so we moved almost the entire facade out a foot or two just to accommodate this ability to, you know, go right outside and then come right back in, you know, with the grilled chicken or something like that. That's right. This was a really big house. Yeah. And the idea that you're going from the kitchen to the, this, it had mm. a big outdoor kitchen space. Yeah. And the idea that you're going to move from your kitchen, which really was on the second floor, mm-hmm. right? The site dropped off a lot. So oh, yeah. ground floor on the front, it was second floor on the back. And so the outdoor cooking area was on the ground floor in the back. So he would have had to have gone outside, down some stairs, the length of this like Olympic size pool <laughs> yep. to the grilling area. And when he goes, I, you know, how often do you grill? I grill a lot. We're like, well, this is crazy. This is not the grill you would use, mm-hmm. right? This is going to keep you from grilling. Yep. This is like the, I have my whole family outside swimming. We're having fun. Guests are coming over. That's what that area was for. The, it's the end of the day. I want to cook a chicken breast. Mm-hmm. So we ended up redesigning the whole back of the house just to accommodate adding this a, a much smaller but still very functional cook area. Yeah. And it wasn't lopped onto the back of the house. We actually, you know, integrated it with the exterior yeah. like sort of porch we had going on. Yeah, we didn't just push a grill up against the wall. Yeah, no, it was it was a big change. Yeah. But it's but it's important because that actually spoke to how that's the first person narrative. Mm-hmm. How when I come home, what's the scenario in which I would want to use my grill? Mm-hmm. And that narrative that we developed put him having to walk really far to get to where he needed to be. Yeah. And we thought that doesn't work. That doesn't support the narrative of mm-hmm. his life because he couldn't really articulate when and how and if this would really happen. You know, to a certain extent, I always kind of wondered, are you really the one that's cooking the chicken breast? <laughs> but still, we knew somebody was probably going to be doing it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, we had another house that um, I did 
and the the owners wanted a very public kind of kitchen. Okay. You yeah. know, so the house had kind of a public and a private kind of space, but it was a yeah. it was a modern house. So the kitchen was wide open. Mm-hmm. We talked to them about the idea of this island and how important the island was in terms of how they worked. And it really was a, I'm working and he's reading the paper and the kids could have like a project laying on top of it. Mm-hmm. So this kitchen has a 16 foot long Ooh. island in it. Okay. It's huge. Yeah. But there's almost no cabinets, no upper cabinets in the space. It's a long kitchen, but it's not a it's not a humongous footprint kitchen. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is if you live in New York City. This would be gratuitous. <laughs> yeah, all relative. <laughs> but you know, this is a five thousand square is foot a house. Texas kitchen. It's a Texas kitchen. <laughs> so what we ended up doing for them is we created kind of two kitchens. Mm-hmm. So you know, there, there's that concept of the butler's pantry, which is where you store crystal and china, and there's usually some staging for food, and it, it it's yeah. kind of an old concept where the kitchen is in one space, the dining room's next door, and the butler's pantry kind of connects the two. Mm-hmm. And so food can be staged in this butler's pantry as people are bringing in and out. It kind of suggests a certain kind of service level that's happening yeah. you know, in this house. So what we did is we created almost a secondary kitchen. It was kind of like a, a really big pantry. And inside this pantry space is where we had the second oven. We had space for if caterers came where okay. they could set up shop, sterno pots, food. Yes, yeah, extension it, of the kitchen. Yeah, yeah, and it's where all their like toaster and the coffee maker went. All that stuff's in this kitchen so that yeah. they don't have to worry about having tambour doors to slide stuff out of the way so that this really open mm-hmm. and exposed kitchen has to be clean all the time. Yeah. So we just got rid of all the stuff that would be a problem and we put it in a room where they can close the door. And yeah. it worked out fantastic. Mm-hmm. We actually had it professionally shot. We finally have the photos. Uh, so I'll probably throw one of those on the in the show notes. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. to see it. Okay, Landon. So what do we think? I would be curious to know after we've been chatting about this for a while. How many architects do you think take their cooking seriously? Is it just us? I hope but all of them do. I mean, this is like why do, why do you of your hope? Life. Why do you hope? I hope. I mean, it's that's how I think. So because it's important. It's important. Yeah, it's a. Uh, it's a skill, just like anything else, you know. Hopefully, you're thinking about what you're doing in your day-to-day life. It's something you can always grow from experience, you know. You're always exploring new things. That's that's part of what I enjoy about it is you're able to try out not only, like, you can go to different restaurants and things, and you bring it back, and you can explore that specific thing, or there's something always you can add to your palette of knowledge almost. Palette, good palette. one. Yeah. <laughs> like an artist's palette, you know? Sure. Bob Ross this. I think essentially it's it's very social. Okay, I think it's pretty obvious. I like to cook. You like to cook. Almost every architect I know likes to cook. And it goes beyond just eating food. It's the whole creative process. Yeah. You know, it's the idea that I have to put time, attention, some rigor mm-hmm. to this. I'm looking to create an output that's not just delicious, but looks good. It was fun. Yep. Feeds me mentally as well as physically. Yeah, and it's an intriguing enough pursuit you know you're continually evolving what you're doing i'm wondering i'm wondering why why don't i just become a chef right now i know let's clearly i have some passion for it (laughs) right and we haven't even talked about barbecue oh the next level that is beyond cooking (laughs) (laughs) why don't that might be below because there's drinking involved almost always there's drinking involved so your subconscious chef comes out yeah (laughs) Is that what you call it? Yeah. Right before you pass out? <laughs> Unconscious stuff is <laughs> the next stage. <laughs> That's right. It's a good thing it cooks for like 12 hours because then you can sleep part of it oh, off. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, right? <laughs> okay. So, I think it's time for 
my newest favorite part of the podcast, the the in my spare time. So, you know, this is this was we introduced it last episode. Mm-hmm. You know, the idea that uh, just like I named the site Life of an Architect, this is the portion of the podcast that has a little bit more emphasis on the life part. So, Landon, what have you been doing in your spare time? Life. Well, <laughs> you've been doing life in your spare time. <laughs> I've been lifing a lot. Uh, well, between now and the the previous episode, I actually did a trip to Idaho again with the traveling. Yeah, more more, more traveling. I got inspired by the last episode. Who is giving you all this time off? <laughs> hmm. You didn't technically approve it. I know. I think I did. Just like, you're like, didn't I? Didn't schedule. I actually email you and say, "Hey, can you do this?" And you're like, "I'm not in the office." Uh, yes. You forwarded something to me and I was like, well, I'm not there. <laughs> so I know I was across the country shaking my fist in yeah. the air. Gosh, I know. too much time off. <laughs> but yeah, so we did, uh, I mean, a couple friends from college went in, uh, to Sawtooth National Recreation Area and we did some, uh, camping, a lot of more camping and, uh, hiking and whitewater rafting. Wow. But yeah, so that was good to do a little camping. Camping. I haven't, I haven't done like a big camping trip like that in a while. Like big um, as in number of days? Or like number of days, but also like there's no way to like it's you're farther away from society. So it was like a thirty minute drive to the nearest city. And I, I say city, you know, very hesitantly. It was like a grocery store and a gas station was the city. Mm. Um Stanley, Idaho. Great town. I guess let's kind of go back to what we were talking about in traveling. I uh, Two of my friends didn't bring sleeping bags. And mind you, it gets down. Like, I got down to 35 because it is it is the coldest region in the lowest 48. But just because of the where how it uh, the, how ele- the mountains lay out. Elevation. Just it, yeah, elevation. But it scoops all the weather coming from the northwest. And it just kind of pockets in there. Um, did so they, have to, they have to snuggle together for that's, warmth? That's exactly. We spooned together. It was great. We? Yeah, we. It was five of us. Yeah. Did you like oh, just close. zip all your sleeping bags into one <laughs> oh, God, big no. sleeping oh, bag? No. I was I was all of my own of mine. I was a warm little cinnabon in mine. So you did no snuggling. No, I came prepared. That's that was part of it. Because that's to. you. You're buttoned I, up. I had everything. Yes. Of course, I've kind of compiled things from like being a scout. I have you know essentially all the gear you could ever want. What what one big thing that I brought was a water filter, a Catadin, uh, I think is the brand. But we were so far from, you know, potable water sources. We were next to a river, so I just used this filter and was able to fill up all our water bottles every morning. And so we had, you know, essentially an unlimited supply of water, which was, like, perfect. Sans diarrhea. uh, You know, actually the opposite condition. Oh, okay. Well, let's not focus. Let's not focus. But, yeah, so, like, one thing, we went to the grocery store, just grabbed a bunch of food and then tried to get to a camping spot, which was, like, it was another 35-minute drive from that little town. Right. And so we got there, go to start cooking food, and everyone's like, wait, we don't have a knife to cut these potatoes. We don't have – what are we cooking these on? I'm like, oh, yeah, I brought aluminum foil with me. Like, I flew with a roll of aluminum foil in my backpack just all the way to Idaho. Idaho wow. just had it. It's like one of those things you can bring toilet paper with you. Like, people would just forget, it. like, oh, wait, I need toilet paper. Like, it's just a thing that's in your house. Because you know stuff in this area. Yeah. So I yeah. had, like, a half a roll of toilet paper. That I just have with all my camping gear. Half a roll. Yeah, half a roll. But you were telling me that there's one piece of equipment that you're looking at yeah, upgrading. So, so on this trip in particular, we didn't do a lot of uh, backpacking. We did kind of just day trips. So you just have a very light pack and all you really need to carry is water and 
food. But I'm thinking about sort of uh, extending this into doing more backpacking kind of trips. So like going 20 mile loop trails and actually camping somewhere on the trail. And of course, you need more gear if you're staying the night. So I'm trying to upgrade my backpack. The one I have now is a really old one when I was in Scouts. So I was like 12 or 13 and I had this giant old rusty sack that I used. And you haven't grown much since you were 12 or 13. No, yeah, I'm, about, I'm about the same size. <laughs> no, but yeah, the uh, there's an Osprey pack. They make really nice like hiking backpacks, and they're super light. Okay. Well, you figure it out, and we'll put it in the show notes. Yeah, it's going to be cool. Well, let me tell you what I've been doing. All right. This is what I'm into lately. I'm not sure I should say lately. I've been into it my whole life, but mm-hmm. I've really been appreciating something lately because I've been doing a lot of traveling. Yeah. I've been in New York, Wisconsin, New Jersey. I mean, these are all separate trips. A lot of time on airplanes, Mm a lot of time in the car. I mean, a lot. And I listen to a lot of music. Oh, we know. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody (laughs) in the office knows. So, hey, you guys know this song and nobody ever knows it. So, my musical vocabulary is pretty large. And it makes sense because when my mom was a music teacher, we had just about every instrument you can imagine in our house. So, Hmm. me, myself, and I at one time or another, could probably ably play four or five different musical instruments. Okay. Like, I could just, I could be in a band. Yeah. Playing the saxophone. Nice. <laughs> Whatever band <laughs> needs a saxophone, I could do that. You have to. F- but other than opera and probably new country, just about every other type of music is currently in a playlist of mine. Mm-hmm. It's a pretty big spectrum. So, but as such, the types of headphones I use are really, really important to me. Okay. And I don't like earbuds. Yeah. Right. Because okay, I'll, yeah. I'll wear headphones for hours on end yeah. at times. And I just don't like the way it feels like I got like like, to stick my finger in my carrot, ear. And carrot sticking in your Yeah. Ear. I don't like it. So I like the over the ear ones. Yeah. And okay. last Christmas, I treated myself to a pair of Bose Quiet Comfort 35. This is a big lane. 35. 35 noise canceling wireless headphones. What does the 35 do? It's got it all. I think the 35 just designates that it's got Bluetooth. Uh, So I can walk around with these. I don't have to have a cord. They don't have to plug into something. That's one thing. Mine mine aren't Bluetooth. So I'm like turning around at my desk if I'm using noise canceling and kind of running over the cord and all kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I didn't want to do that. Yeah. And so. The music's really good. They sound really good. The noise canceling is great. Mm-hmm. I mean, oh, it, airplanes especially. It imagine. totally works. Yeah. Totally works. And, you know, and I was listening to my good friends over at Arca Speak, another podcast, all great guys. Um, One of them, one of the guys, I, was, I don't know if it was in their last episode. I think it was, though. If it wasn't the last one, it was the second to last one. Okay. And they were talking about interns in the office, and, and one of the guys got really bent out of shape because interns are wearing headphones. Okay. And yeah. he's like... You shouldn't be wearing your headphones because think of all the things you're not learning, you know, because you're dialed out. All right. And I went, okay, there's there's a point to that. Yeah. Right. I'm not going to say that he's wrong, but the the enthusiasm for which he held that opinion, I thought was (laughs) maybe a little bit high. Yeah. Because I wear headphones in the in in my own office, Mm -hmm. and I'm kind of the boss, and I do it, and you can you can either approve or you know confirm or deny this. I wear my headphones more times than not. To keep me from talking to everybody else. That is a true statement. Yes. <laughs> yeah. If I'm not wearing my headphones, I tend to, I work and then something will pop in my head and I feel the need to say it out loud. Oh, yeah. yeah. And and since everything I say is hilarious, <laughs> everybody stops. Oh, yeah. <laughs> everybody stops. And it's like they all rotate their chairs because Uncle Bob's going to tell a story. 
right? They need, they need a good laugh for the day. They're like, oh, yeah. Yeah, but they don't need one every 20 minutes because that's kind of what happens. Yeah. So when I notice that I'm being overly distractive or, or if I need to like tune everybody else out because we got 11 people in the office now and it's an open office. Mm-hmm. And sometimes there's just, there's too much going on. So I want to cancel out everybody else. And half time I put on my headphones, I'm not even listening to music. I'm just putting on the noise canceling so I don't have to hear somebody saying something mm-hmm. that I go, that's not right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, and it's distracting or yeah, I wouldn't do that, that if sense. I were you. That's, yes. Yeah, I'll kind of, I don't wear headphones a lot. But when I do, it's essentially like I need to concentrate because I get really sort of distracted when people are a lot, of, especially when people are talking around me. I sort of tune in. I try to tune into everything at once yeah. rather than focusing. It's and a so, social. It's a social cue. Yeah, exactly. And so it, it also tells people that I'm focused because I really am. I'm I'm focused on trying to get something done right now. Like it needs to be done today or something. Or it's just some. Or maybe like when I'm reading, if I need to read some portion of the code. I, I find it hard to read when people are talking, so that's just a personal thing. But even like, you know, trying to concentrate, like we're doing something very technical, like almost have to make sure my brain's tuned in with that. And half the time, the music I'm listening to has no, you know, no no one's singing in it. It's just sort of sure. noise, if anything. You're listening to some house music. Y- yeah. Some, some dead mouth. It's something just sort of like, it could even, whenever I was studying a lot in school, there was this one YouTube video, it's just of waves crashing. I must have listened to it. I must have made up all the likes or the hours of listening to a thing. Because every time I'd go to study something and like I was in a loud place, I'd just listen to waves crashing on like the loudest setting. That's right. You just kind of – it helps isolate. you It helps you tur- tune out. You know, and I'll, yeah. I think I've said this before. Half the time, I'll turn on music and after – I don't even – all of a sudden, I don't hear it anymore. But I'm not aware that I don't really hear it anymore. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, something will cause me to snap out. And I'll realize I'm like 30 songs into my playlist. Yeah. Like at a point, I'd stop hearing it. Mm-hmm. Right. So, I mean, I'm really loving my headphones. Oh, yeah. So, I'm going to call that a wrap. All right. Thank you for being with us for episode five, Architects as Chefs. Thanks for spending your time with us. If you like this episode, please be sure to head over to iTunes and subscribe to the podcast so you can get the latest and greatest new episodes automatically downloaded to your podcast player of choice. If iTunes isn't that player of choice, we're also available on Google Play, TuneIn, Android, Spotify, and a bunch of other platforms. They're all free, and all you have to do is hit the subscribe button on your podcast listening app. I would encourage you to go to iTunes and leave us a 12-star rating. Be sure to visit the original lifeofanarchitect.com for show notes, links, info, and photos from this episode. They're tasty. Uh, I see the cooking (laughs) kitchen there. (laughs) I tried to bring it back around. Be sure to stick around until the very end, or we will treat you with some ridiculous outro tape that made me laugh, so I don't really want to delete it. So thanks for tuning in, and bon appetit. Toodaloo. Do you have any triggers that happen when you get hungry? My stomach hurts. It hurts? <laughs> it, it asks me for food. Oh. It whispers. It's like the ring in Lord of the Rings. Landon. Landon. Food. <laughs> I was wondering where that's going to go. <laughs> you ate dirt. I probably have eaten dirt. <laughs> I remembered it. Yeah, I've eaten dirt. That's not On purpose? Deal. <laughs> I've eaten dog food. I don't know if that's nasty or not. That is. Was it wet or dry? It was dry dog food. On purpose? On purpose, yes. Not on a dare? Nope. I was just hanging out. I don't <laughs> even know where I got the dog food from. 
Maybe just got it from the pantry. And I remember taking it and going to the backyard and just eating like two or three little little nibbles. Like I you was didn't curious. Want, you didn't want anyone to know, so that's why you went in the backyard. Yeah, I knew I wasn't supposed to be doing it, but at the same time, I was curious. <laughs> forbidden fruit. Well, yeah, forbidden dried whatever bits. You ate dog food. Pork, chicken, beef. Never done that. Did it taste? What like, is even in dry dog food? Did it taste like any of those things? It was pretty good, actually. It's probably like if horse was, horse hooves. Oh, okay. Well, that's, that doesn't sound as good. Hot dogs. Yeah, no, <laughs> I don't think they put I don't hot know dogs. What's in it, but maybe it's the same ingredients that are in hot dogs go into dog food. It was like a chicken toe webs. I don't even know. How to eat it. it was like a salty. I don't know what it was. I don't know what's in it. It's just stuff. Why don't you? I have some dog food here. You want to try it? <laughs> no. Yours probably isn't, you know, the grade of quality. No, I have two different, I mean, it's it's high. You know what? There was a girl I knew. Well, I knew the brother and he goes, Mm -hmm. my sister eats dog food. See, yeah. I was like, that's not true. That's not true. And (laughs) she literally, he goes, he calls her out. I'm not going to say her name. (laughs) Roll over. (laughs) No. (laughs) She goes, come here. And so she comes into the kitchen and he goes, you like dog food, don't you? She's like, oh yeah. And there was literally like a bag of dog food. On the counter, uh-huh. she reaches her hand into the bag of dog food, grabs like a fistful, okay. starts throwing back this dog food, Sounds dry like dog mean, food. Mean goldfish. Just yeah, she, it's like back. she's tossing it back, and she starts telling me how you don't want to get like the really high quality dog food because it tastes bad. Like All the really right. kind of the grocery store stuff is like really good. Okay, and she's just she's an expert I mean, tossing it back. Well, all right. I'm not sure she turned out all right. Yeah. <laughs> what, ins- what institution is she at now? <laughs> I haven't heard from her in a long time. 